When Edmund gravely died at the controls of his small airplane, he was flying from North Carolina to Georgia. His wife Janice was sitting in the right seat with no flying experience other than as a passenger. She saw him slump over and thought he had just passed out. And so frantically, she reached for the controls and she grabbed the radio mic at the same time and began screaming in the microphone, help me, help me, won't someone please help me? My pilot has just passed out. Well, very quickly, those who monitor air traffic control systems caught her distress signal. And as they listened, they tried making contact with her, but they were unable to because Janice, in her trauma and her fear, constantly kept switching the channels. And on every channel, she screamed the same thing. And before anyone could respond, she kept switching channels. For the next two panic-filled, terror-stricken hours, she managed to keep the plane aloft. Because she had seen her husband fly for long periods of time and had been a passenger, she knew what the basic controls did. And as she got into South Carolina, she saw a clearing in the midst of a forest where some timber workers had just been. And although it was covered with stumps, she decided, I'll try and put the plane down there. And of course, as soon as she hit the very first stump, the plane began to cartwheel and she crashed, but she survived. She survived her plummet to earth and then for the next 45 minutes had to drag her injured body to a nearby farm to ask someone to help her. In fear and because of trauma, Janice couldn't hear the response. Even though there were those out there capable of guiding her to an airport that wasn't that far away, because of the trauma, she couldn't hear and therefore she didn't listen. I'm going to ask that during the period of the parable study that we would move at such a pace that we don't rush ahead of God, switch the channels, try and get to a different frequency, try and hear from a different source. And in order to do that, it really requires intervention of God. Because as modern day Americans, we're easily distracted. We're easily drawn in different directions. The parable study will be long and it will take a while and we will walk through it methodically. But I'm gonna ask that you would pray with me that God would walk with us in such a way that we would be patient and we would be deliberate and we would wait to hear from him. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would slow us down, that our life wouldn't be moving at such a pace that we totally miss the message that you have for us. So I pray that you would supernaturally, and this goes way beyond our capacity, Father, that you would supernaturally cause us to be deliberate and disciplined, to make decisions that are pleasing to you, to dedicate our time to wanting to know you better. That's why we're in church, that we wouldn't just do this out of ritual, but rather that we would understand better who you are and who we are before you. So Father, we come before you with open hearts, 
I pray open minds and a willingness to say, we need you. We need you every hour. So speak to us now, Father. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The parable series that's before us captivates our attention. And the reason for it is it's because it's God's words. God will speak about things that we're not necessarily familiar with. And he will describe in his own words things that are a bit of a mystery to individuals, like what is his kingdom like? What is he like? What's the nature and character of God? And he's going to do it through parables. If you look in your notes this morning, maybe you already pulled it out of the bulletin, you see that strange Greek word that looks like the English word parable, parabole, and that actually was because we took from the Greek language and we borrowed it over to the English language. They look very familiar, but this is what it means, a placing beside or a comparison. Here's a couple of examples for you. It comes from Luke chapter 8 and Matthew 13. Luke 8 first, it says, when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable or a laying beside. Here's Matthew's example, Matthew 13, 2. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables. So let's bear down just on that last phrase. He spoke many things in parables. You learned last week as we looked at the woman at the well, it's in the Hebrew language, it's called a mashal. It's a very ancient teaching technique. A mashal is a proverb, and it's a simile. And it's all those things combined together. It's, it's a byword. But you'll see that Jesus uses it much more than just that. It's not just metaphorical in nature. There's a point he's driving at. This ancient teaching technique was used to expand the mind by doing these two things, taking the material, the physical, and laying it downside along the spiritual. And that's why it's called a parable, a laying alongside. And Jesus uses it as the master. Uh, if I've lost you in the definitions of it, here's the big idea behind it. The big idea is this, to lay something alongside of something else that's very familiar for the purpose of comparison, taking that which is well-known and that which is not well-known and putting them alongside each other in order to explain it. And as you're going to see, Jesus used many parables. That's why Luke wrote what he did and Matthew did, to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. And he said, when the kingdom of heaven is like this, you want to pay very close attention. You're never going to get a better source than God. And God's the one that's describing it. So he describes what the kingdom of heaven is like. But in the midst of it, he describes what you're like. He says, you and I are salt and light to the world. He says specifically that we're not supposed to worry about the things in our life to be anxious for them. We're supposed to be like the birds of the air or the lilies in the field, to be anxious for nothing. That's a parable. Or he says we should build our lives upon the solid rock of God's word. That's a parable. These are all parables. Some of them are very, very short, and some of them are quite long. Here's why we do it. Working through the parables is really effective because it takes abstract truths and makes them really concrete and more interesting in some cases and easier to remember. Now, here's a reality I deal with as a teacher. It's very likely that most of us leaving here today will not remember 80% of what was taken in or communicated to you. And that's really sad to me as a teacher, right? 
But the reality is you can remember, you could actually place yourself inside the cockpit alongside Janice Gravely. You can identify immediately with screaming into the microphone thinking, I'm going to die if somebody doesn't help me. See, that's the power of the story. It's the power of the parable. We remember things like that, and that's one of the reasons Jesus taught with parables. We remember them because we find ourselves in the midst of the story. But that's not the only reason. You'll find that parables make up one-third, more than that, actually, of Jesus' teachings. So as you work through the things that Jesus shared, you're going to have to remember that 30%, 33%, as much as 35% was done in parables. So Matthew wrote, he spoke many things to them in parables. And catch this, at times, especially when it was nearing the crucifixion, he spoke only in parables to large crowds in public settings. It wasn't until later when he got into private places where he sat down with the disciples, they would say, why are you teaching them in parables? And he would begin to explain to them what the parables were for and why he was doing that. But he was holding something back. Why would God do that? Because an unexplained parable is like a riddle. If you don't have somebody to bring clarity to it, why wouldn't he explain the meaning? Well, you find Jesus saying things like this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning, what I just shared with you is really important. Now, you better go work it out and understand the meaning. But then he left them hanging. Well, you're going to understand why as we walk through this, why he did some of those things. Why did he keep some of it secret? Gratefully, we have God's recorded word now. We have the written word of God in our hands, and they don't have to be misunderstood. They can be completely understood. And so we're going to work our way through that. Uh, while the story form is not unique to Jesus, he is absolutely the master at using parables. And they've been described as works of art, and I would agree. But they've also been described this way. Look on the screen. Dr. Hunter said this in 1974. The parables are like weapons of warfare in a great campaign against the powers of darkness. And how you interpret them is not as easy as you might think. But when you apply them to your life, they are powerful, not only for your life today, but for your destiny and where you're headed. And as a case in point, we're going to use a sample parable this morning as we work forward. I'll explain more about the booklet we have for you after the service, right at the very end. But just trust me on this, that we're going to start this morning with a sample that's not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you go to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament in chapter 18. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's about halfway through the Bible. You just open it up in the middle and it's pretty close to that. Or look at the index in the front. There's Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles after the service. They're on a table in the back by the information area. You're welcome to take one with you when you leave. But Jeremiah chapter 18 declares a parable, and you're going to see a case in point how ancient these are, but how relevant they are to your life. It starts out this way, Jeremiah 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Verse 3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel, but the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. 
to catch what's going on, the visual has been imprinted. God's given a visual to Jeremiah. It's in his mind. God's doing the illustrating, and he chooses to imprint an image just like Janice gravely sitting in the cockpit of the airplane. Jeremiah now has a mental image of something God wanted him to physically see, and it will not be forgotten. So God's taking the physical, the material, and he's about to lay it alongside the spiritual. That's the next verse, verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Let's bear down on that last phrase that God used there. Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. This is very much about you if you belong to God this morning. This is very much speaking to you, not just to the nation of Israel. This is how God's nature and character works. I'll catch what's going on. Jeremiah writes in a time when Babylon as a nation is crushing Israel as a nation. They're suffering from war. They're suffering from famine. They're suffering from disease because they've given themselves over to idolatry. They've abandoned God and they're chasing after other things, so God's going to be punishing them. And in the midst of their suffering, they begin to question God. They begin to challenge God's authority over them. And they began to challenge God's purposes and his plans and his goodness. And what they need is a new view of reality. So step into this setting. Jeremiah stands in the back of the potter's house. If he was in the front of the potter's house, he'd be in the front room, which is the showroom in antiquity. After the potter made his projects, he would move them to the front room of his house. He lived where he worked, unless he could afford a store, and most couldn't. His living room was his showroom. But the back of the house, that's where the work was done. That's where the wheel was at. That's where the creativity took place. And so Jeremiah stands in the back of the potter's house in the workroom where the creator's at work. And making pottery was an important and really ancient occupation, incredibly necessary to the society that they lived in. And Jeremiah, certainly as a little boy growing up in Jerusalem, had seen many times when a potter was at work. But this day, God's going to use it to teach him something about God's nature and character. So he's watching the potter at the wheel. If you go to the Hebrew text, it literally means at the two stones, because on the bottom was a stone that was attached to an axle. And at the top of the axle was another stone. And so as the potter sat at his wheel, he would kick his foot forward and he began spinning the wheel. And as fast as the bottom wheel would spin, the top wheel would spin and it would make a grinding sound. So he's literally sitting at the two stones and he's ready to drop a chunk of clay onto the stones. That's what Jeremiah is watching. The lower stone is turning methodically, rhythmically. It's captivating. It's attached to the axle. Jeremiah hears the hum of the stone rubbing against the surface, and as the wheel turns, the potter begins shaping, putting it in the form that he wants it to be in. And if, if the wheel has the clay on it and the clay doesn't take the form that the potter wants, the desired shape, he doesn't throw it out. Instead, he patiently reworks it and reshapes it, crafting the vessel that he wants. 
So step back into the story. Jeremiah continues watching this, the shaping and the molding, knowing that ultimately the finished piece is going to go onto a drying rack, and from a drying rack into an oven, and from an oven to the front room, and from the front room it's going to be moved into someone's home where it's going to be used and put into use. But this particular piece, this one that Jeremiah is watching, it's flawed. And quite naturally, as you would expect, the potter has to stop the stones from spinning. He takes his foot off the wheel and has to start over again. Take the clay, pull it together, smash it, put it back into a lump, moisten it, and begin shaping it again. While he's observing all of this, Jeremiah is quickly reminded, I'm here for a reason. God sent me here, but why? Why does he want me to see this? I've seen it all my life. And in that moment, God does for Jeremiah what he's done for us this morning. Just like when you picked up the bread and you picked up the cup and it reminded you of what Jesus did for you. God's done the same thing for Jeremiah. He's granted a visual imprint and he's laying it alongside a spiritual reality. And in the process, we're learning about the nature and character of God. So God makes this statement, just drink this in church, Jeremiah 18.6, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Meaning for those who belong to him, for every one of us who names the name of Christ, those who surrendered to his purposes, we're like clay. We're in that position in God's eyes. And this is a huge theological insight. He's the potter, we're the clay, and he's free to reshape us according to his desires. There's a huge reality for individuals to learn that. So like the potter shaping the clay, God exercises that same action over nations. He lifts them up, he puts them down, and he does the same thing with individuals. And in the case of Israel, if they would only repent, if they would stop rebelling against God, he's got a great future for them. But he has to send them off to captivity. He has to let them go to Babylon. They will remain there for 70 years because of their rebellion. But we're talking about us this morning. Now, we're very familiar with the images that God has given us of what Jesus is like when he's called the great shepherd. We think of Psalm 23. It's a parable. The shepherd who tends over his sheep. But here, this image of a potter This is all about the Lord's authority over our life and all about the importance of submitting to his will. Isaiah 29 reminds us of this. It's kind of an obscure verse. Maybe you haven't seen this before, but look with me up on the screen at the statement from Isaiah, another prophet who lived during this period of time. He says this, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? He goes on to say in verse 16, you got things backwards. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it. He has no understanding. In in that, Isaiah is saying, how dare we? How dare we take that position to challenge God's capacity? Now, this is the coolest part, I think, about this parable of Jeremiah. 
in the exact same breath. While he's seeing about God's authority and God's ability, Jeremiah is also reminded of God's activity of mercy and patience with us. Well, how do we see that? Because as the potter's reworking the clay, he realizes God's like that also. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't just throw the clay away. He begins shaping it and forming it. See, if you're being shaped this morning, you feel in the pinch of the master a little bit on your life? Maybe some things have come into your world that you didn't anticipate? And it doesn't take much pressure. I've been there. It's the slightest touch of his hand on the wheel. You begin to feel like something's not right here. Something's being changed. If that's you, if you're being shaped this morning, it's because God is still working on you. Amen? He is. He's still working, meaning he's not finished. He hasn't done all that he's going to do with you. So the text says he's reworking the vessel. If God's your potter and you've surrendered your life to him and you've put yourself in this place where Jesus is your Lord, the text is talking about you. And I'll make it personal for me. He's talking about when he reshapes me, he's seeing something in me that's not ideal, something that needs tweaking. And so apparently I need his hand in order to reshape me. And here's a reality that we can say aloud amen with. With that reshaping, many times comes pain, right? It's a reality. Unanticipated pain. Pain's one thing when you know it's coming. You know it's going to hurt, but when it's unanticipated and you can't figure out where it came from, it puts you in a place of questioning. But note this. He doesn't throw it away. You're still in the potter's house. You haven't been moved to the front room yet. You're still on the wheel, still being shaped, not in the front room, still in the workroom, but not only in the potter's house, church. You're still in the potter's hand. See, if the potter takes his hand off, the clay is thrown off the wheel. I remember this from high school art class and college art class. I threw clay, turned it a few times. Didn't turn out so good. Didn't want to do that for a living. But I realized if you take your hand off the clay, it will throw it off onto the floor. You need the hand of the potter on you. And so you still have the hand on you. And so that means the only reason you are where you are this morning the only reason you are what you are is because God's hand is on you. He's on you. He hasn't abandoned you. Even though you might feel right now, maybe with what you're going through, you might feel like you've been thrown on the floor. God says, no, you're, you're actually in my hand. You're on my wheel, and I'm just shaping you. You're on the potter's wheel, church. Turn to a friend next to you and say, you're on the potter's wheel. Here's why I want you to do that. New Hope, when you open yourself up to the will of God and you did that, if you're a Jesus follower this morning, you lifted the cup this morning? You lifted the bread? You followed Jesus? The reality is when you open yourself up to the will of God in that decision, you placed yourself on the wheel of God. And that means he has the freedom to mold and to shape according to his plan. Uh, this last part, we're coming in for a landing here. This last part, I promise you, is going to make you squirm. I, I heard from the 9 o'clock service, people, individuals said, thanks for telling us that in advance. 
It, it did. It, it's going to cause you to be a little bit uncomfortable. In the midst of being on God's wheel, have you ever found yourself in the place of judging God? I have. I don't know exactly what it sounds like. Because when his actions are contrary to our expectations, we are prone to judge God. In other words, when life isn't going the way that we planned it, when it's not measuring up to what we want, we're prone to challenge God. And it sounds like this. God, what are you doing? Now, it might start out much more innocent than that. Maybe in the beginning, the pressure isn't so great, but as the pressure mounts, it's like, are you really in control? Do you really have things for my good? Because it doesn't feel very good right now. And in that, we begin challenging God's authority. When we were in Romans, and I know some of you were, we've spent some time in that book. When we were in Romans chapter 9, we saw Paul hit this head on. We're not going to spend a lot of time in it this morning, but just a sentence. Let me show you the question that Paul asked because it was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Even a casual reader of the Bible knows that God is perfectly just. Yet when we see things that don't make sense, when we experience things that we can't explain, it puts us in this place of confusion and Likely, we want answers. That's, that's great to ask for answers, but it's when we begin challenging God's supremacy and sovereignty that it makes it really distasteful in our mouth. You might remember this phrase from when we were in Romans chapter 9. Charles Simeon summed it up really well in 1833. The sovereignty of God is to the proud heart of man a most unpalatable subject. <laughs> he nailed it, right? Yuck, it tastes bad in my mouth. See, God's activities can seem really, really hard. Some of us would even say they seem harsh because to a finite mind, and we've got a finite mind, we're not infinite, we're finite, we're prone to accept and to allow things that fit our preconceived ideas of what we think is fair, almost exclusively based on our life experience. If it, if it fits with our life experience, then maybe I understand it. But consequently, when God's actions, and he acts in ways that we don't understand, we're prone to judge him as being harsh. And it sounds like this. That's not fair. And that's a phrase we're all too quick to use. Now, theologically speaking, and if you're not familiar with that term, theology is the study of God. Theologically speaking, if we want to talk about fair, Fair in God's economy, that equates to justice. And if God were only to implement his justice, none of us would get into heaven. Fairness wouldn't allow Jesus to go to the cross. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We deserve hell, but God gives us heaven. That's not fair. It wasn't fair for Jesus to go to the cross, but gratefully, God's got this thing called grace, and it's amazing. If you've never heard of it before, you might want to check it out. It's stunning that he would forgive. It doesn't fit into the economy of fair. Now, if I've lost you on that thought, hear it this way. Here's an example for you. 
When we read the Bible and we learn about God's character and nature and he says things like, take care of the widows, make sure you nourish the orphans, love your neighbor, lift up the downtrodden, feed those hungry people. We readily accept that and say, that's excellent. I love God for that. I love his character and nature that way. But if the same God says, my perfect will must be done, that causes us to recoil because we don't always like his perfect will. So consequently, when God takes actions to achieve his will, we're prone to judge him by a finite mind, a finite, sin-tainted mind. So here's God's point in this parable. It's inappropriate for the created to talk back to the creator as though we can judge his activities. I'll just take this one step further, two more verses from Romans, and I'll, I'll land this plane for you. Watch what he says here in verse 20 of Romans 9. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Imagine going home this afternoon Maybe you started the dishwasher before you left this morning or last night and you haven't yet unloaded the dishwasher. And you get home and you open up the dishwasher and you pull out the top tray and there's a cereal bowl sitting there and the cereal bowl says to you, why did you put me next to the plates? That's my best bowl impersonation. Okay. Would that not challenge the authority of you? This is where scripture's going with this particular issue. In an infinitely greater way, it is far more arrogant to challenge God than for a bull to talk back to you. And bull's not going to do that. So as a result of being on his wheel, you're going to find doors opening and you're going to find doors closing. And at times, you may not have wanted that door to close. But when those doors close, the great struggle that we have is in the midst of the door closing on us. We begin to blame God, and it might be really subtle, and we might even hide it away in our heart, and we might keep it in a secret place, but we begin to accuse and challenge God as though he doesn't know what he's doing, and that's the issue Jeremiah ran into in Jeremiah 18. Got an entire nation saying, what are you doing to us, God? Why are you letting this happen to us? God's parable is that's the clay talking back to the potter or if you will, the bowl inside your dishwasher. Having talked to us for 12 years since we launched New Hope and years before that in ministry where I was at, I've talked to so many individuals who are frustrated with where they're at in life. And maybe that's you this morning. Many people, and this is a secret most of us don't even know, but it's common. Many people feel as though they should be in a different place. Like circumstances are too hard. I should be in a different place by now. Can I remind you? God chose you to be here during this moment in time. Can I remind you also that many people didn't even make it into 2008, 19 of October? There's many who have died that you're still here, that you're on this planet, the mere fact that you're drawing breath at this moment in time is because God has plans for you. If you agree with that, say amen. So I'm going to reinforce that this morning. We're just about done. 
But I want you to hear that and be reinforced with it. It's his purposes that are at work. So God reminds us in a simply complex way. Can I put those two words together? It's a simple parable, but it's really complex. Theologically complex, simple image here. He reminds us in this simply complex parable that he can take action and he should take action because he's responsible for shaping us to accomplish his perfect plan. And as the master, he knows exactly how to lovingly shape you. This next part's not going to be on the screen. It's in your notes just to encourage you to look at your notes at some point. How does God shape us? Here's the three ways he does it. He does it by trials. He allows trials to come into your life. He does it by chastening, and that means discipline. And he also does it by circumstances. But when you take all three of those things put together, you can be reminded of Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. He may take you through chastening. He may take you through hard circumstances. He may take you through trials. But he's causing things to work together for good. So I'm going to let you go out the door with two verses I want you to remember. These aren't in your notes. You might want to write them down. You might want to write them down in the back of your Bible if you have it open. These are to remind you of the two things you saw coming out of this parable this morning. Be reminded, God has a plan for your life. Jeremiah 29.11 states this. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then this reality, when we fail, God doesn't take the clay and throw it away. He doesn't reject it. He continues to work until he makes us into what he wants us to be. Philippians 1.6 speaks to that. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And everybody said, amen. That's a great truth to be reminded of. I'm going to pray with you in just a minute. We have something to praise God for. We'll praise to close this service, uh, but I just wanted you to hear some details from last weekend. Last weekend for the grand opening, we had 1,000 people that came to New Hope. That's pretty cruel. And we fed 700 people and gave away hundreds and hundreds of T-shirts. If you didn't get one, maybe you had to leave early and you missed it. They're free T-shirts, and they're on the table in the back back there. So we want you to take one with you this morning. It's a new hope. Got a logo on it. Make sure and go look for your size. Here's the next thing, and it's related to the parables. So we've got this little book that we printed, and these are free. They're on the three tables or two tables in the back. We printed enough so you can have one per household. If you need more than that, we certainly understand. I know some of you are traveling. These are not intended for you to go through like a daily devotional. It's not like there's one for every single day. There's lesson one and lesson two and lesson three. Well, you'll find lesson one and lesson two are very close of a match for what we talked about this morning. It's intended as reminders. So this week, I would encourage you to read lesson one and lesson two. Next week, we'll get into the components of lesson three. So what you're going to find is there's a lesson per week. I really want to encourage you to take one of these, pick it up. The, the team did a fantastic job. Uh, pastor Rich, Rich Bruce is our discipleship pastor, and he started working on this in April. And we've got a great team, graphic artists and individuals who came alongside and helped him develop this. Be sure and pick one up on your way out this morning. It'll really help you with the parables, especially next week as Jesus begins talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like.
So I'm gonna pray for us right now, send you out the door, and be sure and pick one of these up on your way out. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you for every single person watching online and every person in this auditorium right now that you've used even this simple parable of a potter at the wheel to remind us you are in control and we are under your authority. And even when we feel things that we don't like, that it is you shaping and molding and you will use it for our good. Encourage us with that, Father. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and I pray for those who are not yet believing that we would leave this place having felt as though we engaged with you and we know you a little bit better, even if it's just a degree better, Father. I pray for those who may not know you yet, that they may not yet be believing that you might use this to draw them closer to you. Show them your love, Father. Show them your mercy. Thank you, Father, for every soul here. We leave here now celebrating for what you've done at New Hope. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.